When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That is Psalm 126, which along with 124 and 125 are the Psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, June the 28th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the story of Balaam, the prophet for hire, in Numbers 22, verses 21 to 38, also in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 to 32, and in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 7, the first 12 verses. So remember yesterday that, that uh, Balak, the king of Moab, had, had felt a threat from the people of Israel because they were so numerous that he was afraid that they were going to come and attack him. And so he sent for this prophet, Balaam, and, and wanted him to come and curse the people of Israel. And, and he did so with the belief that all those that Balaam blessed were blessed and those who he cursed would be cursed. So he has faith in Balaam to come and speak this word and have it come true. So God prevented him from going the first time. So he sent more people and more stuff to bribe him with and said, come on, do this. And God said, do it. And then we get this, though. So Balaam rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. It's an interesting thing because God had told him to go, but speak only the things that he told him to speak. But here he goes. And now God is his adversary and is angry because he's going. What, why in the world would that be? Well, I, I think that I see another parallel <laughs> in the story of Balaam. And that's the story of when Moses is sent to Egypt from Midian, when he has the encounter with God there with the burning bush in the wilderness. And he goes, right? He and his wife and his kids, they go. And on the way there, God breaks out against him. His anger's kindled against Abraham, who's doing exactly what God told him to do. And, and he's going to kill him there, the one that he sent. What happens? Zipporah, his wife, then circumcises their children because they had failed to do that. While they were in Midian, they had not circumcised the children. And that's when God's anger abated against him. So he went but he hadn't chosen a side. He, he could still plausibly go back as an Egyptian, kind of sneak in under cover of darkness and check things out. But no, he had to align himself fully with God's purpose. So he had to bring everything in his family into and under the covenant with God. Here, Balaam's going, and it would seem, based on this and based on that parallel, that, that he still hasn't aligned himself fully with God. And so we see this angel of the Lord standing as an adversary in his path. And again, we see another parallel, I think, between this and when Joshua sees the man of God prior to entering the land. And Joshua wants to know whose side he's on. And his answer is, it isn't me that has to choose a side. Are you going to be on my side? Are you going to be on the Lord's side? Are you going to be on the other side? And here I think it's very much the same thing. 
He said he was riding on a donkey, and his two servants were with him. And remember I told you yesterday that the Jewish sages see a parallel here between Balaam and Abraham, because they're both prophets of God. The only pagan prophet whose prophecy is is in the Torah, the first five books, is Balaam's. And it prophesies the Messiah, and they know it. They will say that. That he, he is truly a prophet of God sometimes. He's both wicked and also God uses him powerfully. And so, but, so here he goes with his donkey and two servants with him. The only thing missing is Isaac. But he's going in the same way. There's so many parallels in this. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed, trying to sneak around Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood at a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. That's a posture of worship, right? Because she would, when she laid down, she would come down onto her knees and then come down. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. You can see this striking thing. Again, that kind of goes back to um, Moses in the wilderness. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And again, God's able to open the mouth. There's another parallel there. That other parallel is this. Moses argues with God and said, I don't speak well. And God said, who do you think made your mouth? Who do you think has control over your mouth? I think I can have you speak any way that I'd like for you to speak. I'm able to do this. But, but he has a defect, he says. He can't do this. And God says, I'm able to overcome that defect. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. And here, he does the same thing with the donkey. So the donkey says, why did you hit me three times? He said, because you've made a fool of me. I wish I'd sworn a sword in my hand, for then I'd kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? Doesn't this seem a little strange to you? Don't, don't you think maybe you ought to question why? And he said, no. He was right. <laughs> Is it, it's not your habit to treat me this way. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. So he opened the donkey's mouth. Now he opens the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. Kind of like Moses at the burning bush. <laughs> and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Your, I know your plans. I know what you're intending to do. You're intending to cash in. <clears throat> the donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. You're standing on holy ground. You, you have just come up against somebody bigger and stronger than you, and you have no hope. So Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I'll turn back. So I, I, surely I didn't know I was standing on holy ground. Is that what it sounds like? I didn't know that you stood in the road against me. I've sinned. Now, therefore, it's evil in your sight. I'll turn back. I'll go back if that's what you want me to do. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab 
on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did you, did I not send you to call you? Why didn't you come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Don't you think I can give you enough? Is is that the thing? Do Do you think it's just not worth your while that I can't make it worth your while for you to come out? Have I no power now? Any no, sorry. Balaam said to Balak, "Behold, I've come to you. I'm here now, right? Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak." And so he he's coming out in the same way that Moses comes out. You know, I'm going to watch my lips. I'm only going to say the thing God allows me to speak. I'm not going to say anything else. But he's pointing to the word that God puts in my mouth that I must speak. Does does Balaam have any or Balak have any idea who Balaam's talking about here? What God? Is he the God of Moab or is he some other God? So he doesn't know at this point. And and Balaam doesn't undertake to make that clear in the gospel today, remember, so Jesus has, has come in on Palm Sunday. He goes out and stays at Bethany. He comes in the next day, curses the fig tree on the way because it's not producing any fruit and he's hungry. And now he enters the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? You know, that reminds me of, of something in the Old Testament that relates to Moses as well. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Who gave you authority? That's what the Israelite says to him when he tries to break up the quarrel between two Israelites. That's the question is, who made you ruler and judge over us? And that's what they're asking here. Who gave you the authority to come in here and speak in the temple? And their point is, if I don't remember any of us giving you that authority, and we're the ones who have the authority over this. They're, that's what they're trying to say. They're not saying, did God give you the authority to do this or not? They're saying, we didn't, so where you think you're getting the authority to do this? Jesus answered them, I'll also ask you a question. If you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Because it's related to this question, the baptism of John. Where did it come from, heaven or from man? And, and so that's exactly the point. Did you get authority from heaven or did you get the authority from man to speak here? And Jesus is obliquely answering that question because they know that he didn't get it from man. So they have their answer, if they think about it for a second and a half, they'll realize he just, he just told you where his authority came from. He got it not from man, he got it from heaven. But, nonetheless, they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say what we really believe, from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they'll, they all hold they all, they all, not we all, hold Jesus that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Really, you don't know. No guess, no, no opinion even. And he said to them, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. But like I said, he has already really given them the answer because they wanted to know where did you get the authority? Because we think we're the ones who have the authority to give you authority to do this. And, and so with the way Jesus answered tells them the answer is from heaven. So Jesus then says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes come in, go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you didn't go afterward, change your mind, 
and believe him. So Jesus is affirming that their answer is right, but what he's affirming is if you had done the way those people did, that, that first son did, to initially deny it, but then see it, believe it, and change your mind and go, then you'd enter the kingdom of God. But because you won't do that, because you still will not acknowledge that John's anointing came from heaven, then you're not getting in, but prostitutes and tax collectors will. I mean, he's saying this. Remember, chief priests and elders of the people are the people he's talking to. He's not talking to random people hanging around. Those are the people that he's talking to. So these chief priests and the elders, he says, you get, you get the right answer, but, but God would rather have obedience. He would rather have you recognize him moving and respond to that, but you have different motives, don't you? Yeah, you have different motives. You think differently. You, your motives are not aligned with God's plan and God's will. You, you do this for your own aggrandizement, not for the right reasons. And Paul says that that, that same thing is true. We, we need to be quick to repent. And, and repent means more than confess. It means turn around and go in the other direction. He says, don't you know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, so he must be writing mostly to Jews, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a, because, well, you can't do the, will, <laughs> the law when you're dead. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So marriage is dissolved at death. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Again, he's, he, he's saying very specifically that you are dead, or you were dead, and you have been raised to new life. So your obligation under the law has ended. It doesn't mean the law's bad, though, and that's going to be the next part of his argument. He says you've been set free from the law of sin and death because you've been given life through faith in Christ Jesus, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. In, in Galatians, he argues that the law is a pedagogue, and a pedagogue is, is a teacher in some ways, but a pedagogue was not a teacher in school. A pedagogue was somebody hired in Greek society to say, the, the, I want this child to be raised up in such a way that he bears my image. In other words, he needs to have the same values that I have, and he needs to become a small sort of replica of me, needs to think the way that I do, needs to understand the world around him in the way I do, and it's the way we should raise our children, and we shouldn't give our children over to school systems that want to teach them a different way of thinking and understanding the world that, that moves God out of the picture and moves the teaching of Scripture out of the picture. We should not do that. But here, he says, you've been released from that law, having died to that which held us captives. And so the pedagogue, what the pedagogue would do, was the pedagogue would, would accompany that child everywhere and manage what the child did and what the child said. So the child was responsible constantly to another adult. And that adult could be a tattletale, or the adult could do what he was authorized to do, which was to discipline that child as well. 
And so Paul likens the law to a pedagogue. And it got us to the point where it restrained sin enough and gave us the guidelines and the contours of life well enough that we could then, in Jesus, have freedom because we understand the contours of life. We understand God's will. But now we've been given the Spirit to teach us and to to cause in us a desire to obey that law and to accept those confines as as, as wildly freedom-giving. That we understand it not as a narrow, restrictive thing, but as a broad way and, and gives us the ability to interpret that and to apply it to everyday situations in our lives. That's the point of the Holy Spirit for us. He says, so, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin for about the millionth time? By no means, he says. Yet if it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. Well, look at Adam and Eve, right? I mean, they, they were given a law, right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the, the, the intention was by living together with God, they would learn that way, in relationship with him, that they would know good and evil through relationship with God as they walked the path that he gave them to walk. They were to grow into that knowledge, and they would choose the good always. That was the plan. And then it got derailed by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now I want some other way of knowing good and evil other than to know it through relationship with God as we walk out this life. And now what he's done with the Holy Spirit given to us is he's given us the opportunity to do that. Doesn't mean we don't need the Bible. Doesn't mean we don't need the Old Testament. Doesn't mean we don't need the law. Because we're not an unmixed chalice, let's say. There's more than just his Spirit in us. There's more than that. So we need to know the Word of God in order that we can trust the Spirit given to us that we can trust the Spirit is leading us into all truth, but we know that by, by knowing truth. He says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, whatever God prohibits in me, that says there must be something good, or at least enjoyable, over there. And he says, the, the very speaking of it produced it. Because it was already in me. It was already in me to do this thing. So whatever God prohibited, I wanted more of. He said, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. If, if you don't define something as sin, then I'm not going to desire it. I, I wouldn't desire to commit adultery if you hadn't told me that it was wrong. And there's something now experientially that, that, that gives me a dopamine hit if I do it. I, I'll have regret and, and you know all that other stuff that comes with it later. But, but at the moment, I get the pleasure so he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Died, past tense. I'm not dying. I died. The very commandment that produced life proved to be death to me. Promised life, sorry. Proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And, and that, that is, that's a very Jewish way of understanding things. Um, they're they're Two impulses in a man, it said, and that's the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Hara. And, and the Yetzer Tov is the, is the good impulse, and the Yetzer Hara is the evil impulse. And it's not quite like a devil sitting on one shoulder and an angel sitting on the other, because the, the difference is, is that Yetzer Hara 
it has to be managed. You know, it's not wrong to want to live in a climate-controlled environment. And so we develop the technology to make those kinds of things happen. But then that can be carried to the nth degree, right? I mean, so that's that's what Balak thinks is going on with Balaam. He thinks, well, I just didn't offer him enough the first time. He didn't understand how big a deal it was. I'm able to do anything for you. Well, it, it sounds a little bit like Satan speaking to Jesus, right? If you if you bow down and worship me and do what I tell you to do, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And, and so we can be... Um, we can want good things, but the reason we can want those things can be completely wrong. They can be for self-aggrandizement, self-honor, all those kinds of things. And, and that's exactly what we're not supposed to do. So our motives matter. Am I being obedient because God loves me and I want to please my Father? Or am I being obedient because I want something? And if I do this, I, I'm feeling at some level I'm obligating God to do something that I want Him to do. And Paul says, no, no, no. You've been set free from that. You've been set free. Check your motives, but be obedient to God's Spirit moving in you and love Him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus says in the gospel today that, that you know the truth, but you won't be obedient to the truth. You got the question right when I asked you about which son did the right thing, and you won't do it. Because to, to have acknowledged John to acknowledge Jesus would admit that they had to give up their positions of power and importance and authority over the people. It's always important that we, that we examine our motives. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And do it because God first loved us. And we're returning that because we want him to be proud of us.